named our podcast the World Class Agency Podcast, not because we thought we were world class, but because we try and get closer to it every conversation that we have. What does World Class Estate Agency look like to you? World Class Estate Agency is all about people. The good estate agents add, adds an incredible amount of value to the consumer. He's, he's looking after the customer properly, so being approachable, being accessible. And for me, every day's a learning day. What does being a world-class agent mean to you? Hello and welcome to another episode of the World Class Agency Podcast. My name is Sam Hunter, uh, filling in uh, hopefully ably well for Mark Worrell this week. Uh, We're both having a week off, so I'm recording this uh, episode at 10 a.m. on a Friday morning for me. and My guest joins me at 5 p.m. from Los Angeles. Uh, Our guest today is his second appearance on the show, nearly three years actually to the day from the first time around. Uh, He's an expert in estate agency as well as both trade press and the wider media. And the reason he comes uh, to this episode um, is because there's been a lot of uh, what we would call strong or sensationalist language uh, out there in the media. And we're going to try our best today to understand why they try and scare the world into submission and how we make sense of that sensational. So call it the estate agency Frost versus Nixon. Hopefully it's less left versus right and a bit forward for everybody. Russell Quirk, welcome back to the World Class Agency podcast. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. And thank you. It's, it's quite a, uh, we're taking this podcast global, being that it's yeah. an English show primarily. We've got a few listeners in Australia and New Zealand, but you're in LA, I'm in Brisbane, mm-hmm. and it kind of works for both of us. So this is how it should be it, done. It was quite a chore trying to set this up, wasn't it? <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. Both, both being in Britain and then trying to work out what the times were in both LA. In fact, I was in LA. I'm now in Vegas and then I'm going back to LA in a couple of days. Uh, and of course, you having now jetted back to Australia. So yeah, it was, um, there, was, there was some maths involved, wasn't there? There was some maths involved. There's probably an app in that for anybody who's listening to this with a creative mind. But we're not here to talk about time zones today. Uh, last time you joined us, you said World Class Agency was about being approachable and accessible 24-7 and on a more individual, personal basis than behind a brand. Three mm. years on, a global pandemic later, you're in Vegas at an agency conference at the moment. What does World Class Estate Agency look like to you now? I think we've got nearer to that, I hope. I mean, the the, the kind of birth and the traction of the self-employed model i think that's starting to kind of gain purchase now um i think you know and whether it's exp or keller williams or the agency or whatever we're, we're now starting to see the impact i think of a number of those brands kind of coming to the fore and mm. starting to starting to build a bit of presence and they are all about the individual, you know, and, and in fact, a lot of these platforms talk about the fact that they only exist really to support agents, which means in turn, the agent does well and they as the platform do well. The whole premise of that is to empower the agent in terms of, you know, all the usual stuff around compliance and admin, all the stuff, all the crap that agents don't want to do. But, but it's also because there's no kind of marketing as a consumer marketing play, really. It's a very different to, let's say, a Purple Bricks proposition, which was all about dropping 15 million pounds a year and providing what I would call lazy leads to Mm. their property experts. What I think we're seeing now, and obviously I say this sitting in the US, having spent the last five days talking to some, I was going to say incredible individuals, Sam, but you know what? They're ordinary individuals over here that 
you know, don't know anything else but to be a self-employed real estate agent or broker where they go out and find their own leads, they nurture them and they convert them into listings and they earn, I mean, frankly, ridiculous money. You know, if you're you're not earning £100,000, dollars, whatever, in this country, it means you're either very part-time or you're really not very good. Um, And the majority of decent agents that take agencies a full-time endeavour in the US, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries, look, they, they earn substantially more than they do in the UK. So they earn substantially more than they do in the UK, but not just based on the fact that, oh, yeah, but the fees are higher, which is what people will be shouting now. It's on the basis that they are simply better agents, mm. and particularly lead gen, nurture, and to your point in your first kind of the intro in your question, better when it comes to relationship building and and whether that's the relationship with the client that is a current seller or you know a buyer or someone that is 12 months away from that i think agency needs to be all about not spending money on marketing to get 40 leads to pick one valuation out of that it's about speaking to 40 people over a month knowing that eventually 30 of those people in 6 12 18 24 months time if you look after them properly if you provide value if you provide guidance and advice and you're nice to them, and they see that you're a real human that adds value to them, then you're going to do business with them. And and without spending a fortune on marketing, but also, unfortunately, with a a great load of patience having to be part of that, because, as I say, it's, it's, it's often a long, long game. So I think the UK is getting towards that. I think that's being pushed by the self-employed models. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen how quickly that takes off and gets to what you would call a tipping point mm. where a significant number of UK agents make that move, that jump to backing themselves to kind of go out and do 10 or 12 deals a year. And as a consequence, earn hundred K and put most of that in their pocket rather than the board of directors of Connells or Foxtons. Do you think uh, 10 or 12 deals a year is, is enough to motivate people to go and do that? Because that's less than, a, than, than one a month, right? Um, or if you're taking a couple of weeks holiday every year, you know, so if you're working your 48 weeks a year and you're doing 10 deals, uh, it's still, it's still less than a month. Like, is that, if that's what people are working on, is that attracting the right sort of people to give that service? Or do you want people who are actually going to be in it to earn, even more money than that, but actually do the business and provide that service to more than 11 sellers every year. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I use that number as an example because that's pretty much what I did. So I, even though my main business is running proper PR as a PR agency, I still get inbound from people that I know and friends of friends and so on that want me to help them sell their home. So I, mm. I'm still a state agent. So I, I, I did 14 deals in 2021, completions. Um, and earn about 100k now some of those were cheapies some of them were more expensive um i guess what i'm trying to illustrate is that someone like me that look, I'm, I'm a busy guy and i'm pretty resourceful i think but even though the majority of my time is spent on the business development and running the business side of the pr firm i still had enough time to do 14 deals and added 100 grand to my income kind of sitting on my hands not doing much so the to answer the question, crikey, yeah, if you're if you're a decent lister or branch manager or neg, and you can't do two deals a month, so yeah, twenty four deals a year, 
at whatever your average fee based on your average house price in your area is, let's call it 4K, well, that's that's easy to do. And if you take your element of that, let's say you take three quarters of that, because you know, depending on the platform, that's kind of how the splits and the caps work and so on, which obviously I can explain if you want. Um, that's that's a good living. It's a greater living than you're ever going to have working as a branch manager at you know Ward and Co. or you know Countrywide somewhere or even a Foxton's. You know, it, it's so who wouldn't back themselves as a decent agent, Sam, to do mm. two completions a month? Really? I mean, if you can't do two completions a month, based on using your own network and maybe some lead generation from a paid source certainly being active on social media, maybe some leafleting, dare I venture, maybe some door knocking even. Um, if you can't do two deals a month, you shouldn't be in the business, should you? No, I'd agree with you. And actually, that that's where I think um, the real progress, you talked at the start of this about you're starting to see some impact of, of self-employed agency. And we won't make this entire conversation about that because I want to get on to what's been bombarding everyone's mindsets the last few weeks uh, as well. But the real impact comes when these agents that have a higher care factor than perhaps others, because they're incentivized financially to have that higher care factor and they've got a great work ethic and all of those things match up really well so that it becomes not necessarily just a lifestyle business, but their business puts them in a lifestyle that they've always wanted. That's when actually people start to see the impact of that better service as well. Coming back to your original answer of it being more individual, more personalized, um, making sure that everybody understands that they are approachable and accessible, maybe not 24-7, but more so than having an office number that that closes at 6 o'clock every single night. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and that, that's definitely true. So if you if you know that you're earning 75% of a £4,000 fee and you're banking that for yourself, you will be better in terms of your approachability and your, your service levels because you're incentivized to be so, but also just because you feel more obligated, I think, yeah. towards the consumer. So... The, the consequence of the, the the kind of, let's not call it even the self-employed model. I mean, it is, but it's really just an independent agency model. It's you using your knowledge, experience, and resources to keep most of the fee, right? Mm. <laughs> when you think about it like that, why on earth wouldn't you do that? Why on earth would you sit there at Foxton's taking 5% of the fee that you've probably done 99% of the work on? So, yeah, look, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, I, I genuinely think there'll be a tipping point that'll come at some point in the future. Uh, at the moment, I reckon there's about a thousand self-employed agents in the UK across the kind of five or six platforms that now exist. Uh, that, I think, will get to double that fairly quickly. Uh, and, and I've learned in life, Sam, not to kind of now put timescales on these things. I used to do that when I ran eMove and um, they, they kind of never came good. So let's, let's agree that it'll increase. Hmm. And I think the tipping point is when there's two to 3,000 agents, it then becomes more normalized. And I think then it, it'll, it'll explode uh, into something that's a significant part of the estate agency sector in Britain. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and, and from a, a personal perspective, I think it is the way forward. Um, the reason why real estate, let's call it that in, in Australia, New Zealand, the States is perhaps perceived by the public to be a higher value um, experience is because people are providing more value and they can only do that if they're earning more money. Um, yes. Otherwise you're just scrambling nonstop. So um, I'm glad we agree on that. Let's see if we agree on, on the rest. Uh, so I wrote down a question for you, which I'm going to ask 
because I think it's a funny question. Um, but I'm going to give it some context first, uh, if I may. So we had a conversation after a podcast that we released uh, two weeks ago where we talked about just a, a snapshot of some of the headlines that have been put out just by the trade media in the week prior. And they had words in there like chaos, um, collapse. And it was all very uh, shock and awe style media. And I guess my, my question to you is, what's wrong with journalists? <laughs> uh, or maybe the better question is, why why do journalists feel, why does it feel difficult for them to report facts rather than extremes? Yeah, and it's a great question. So I would actually say that it's probably more the editors than the journalists. So the, the, the journalists obviously tend to write what the editor wants them to do from a, mm. st a strategic or a tactical perspective. What, what we see, and I think what we have seen in the media increasingly through not just property, but politics and COVID and Brexit and so on, is this increasing kind of almost a post-truth sensationalism, where people are now, as journalists and editors and publications, competing very, very strongly for eyeballs and, and ears. Now, if the mainstream media is now made up not just of newspapers and a couple of TV channels like it was when I was a kid, but now there's, you know, 50 news channels and there's multiple online publications that produce news and then there's social media too. Then those organisations that, after all, most of them are funded by advertising revenue that comes from traction, which mm. takes the form of clicks and views and comments and so on you can kind of see how over the last few years of this kind of digital age that's developed there is this hunger almost a necessity a need a desperation to make sure that they grab that attention that person for three minutes five minutes ten minutes or whatever and and really the only way to do that unfortunately is it seems to exaggerate and to make people click as a clickbait kind of scenario a kind of clickbait uh, kind of um dynamic to and the only way that you do that i guess successfully is by scaring you know um and we've all seen headlines not just in the property media but in the consumer media mm. where you'll get a headline on twitter that the daily express will start to write which will say um megan markle in alarming wardrobe dot, 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 right? You therefore have to click on it to find out what they're talking about. Normally, <laughs> it's something benign and ridiculous. So we, we, we become a clickbait media kind of uh, society, I suppose, because it's all about judging the success of that media outlet by the traction that they get in terms of those, those clicks and the particularly the comments, I think, you know, comments, comments are very, very important to those media organizations. It shows engagement. Um, and, and therefore what you get more and more and more is you get exaggeration and sensationalism. You also get, I would say, blatant and outright lies from those media organizations. I'm mentioning no names in particular, Sam. I've had kind of offline, off the record conversations with journalists and editors many, many times about a statistic or a piece of data mm. that they have turned into a story and a headline where the either the data is completely incorrect or they have misinterpreted it often on purpose. Um, I mean, I, I, I can give you an example. I won't mention the publication, but there, there were some employment numbers that came out some months ago that actually showed claimant count, right? So benefit claim, mm. universal credit. 
And, and this particular global news organization, and, and whereby I knew the business editor had said that the consequence of those claimant numbers increasing meant that we were now heading towards mass unemployment. Now, that in itself is a bit of a stretch. Right? Um, but if, when you realize uh, that when they quoted the source of that, those stats, it was the Office of National Statistics, the ONS on their website actually had a big disclaimer on that story, so on those particular statistics saying, this is claimant count, not unemployment, and therefore mm. there is not necessarily a relationship between those things. Because as a benefit claimant, you can be employed. So I, I remonstrated with the guy that I know that was kind of behind that story. And, and honestly, his response was, yeah, but that's just our interpretation. Hmm. And, and, and clicks. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what wouldn't get clicks is universal credit claimants are up because of COVID, unemployment's still at 4%, um, hmm. which is at almost an all-time low. So, and, and, and then the other problem, apart from the, the purposeful exaggeration and the kind of clickbait scenario, is I think some journalists, because there's so much information going on now, so much data, and there's so much opinion from experts, right? So you kind of introduced me at the beginning of this as an expert, and I'd, I'd like to think that I know a little bit about property. But unfortunately, there's lots of people out there that think they're experts on a lot of things, and particularly when it comes to Brexit and COVID mm. and so on. And a lot of stuff, particularly about the situation we've had recently around the mini budget, and what happened in terms of the pound tanking and swap rates increasing and mortgage rates increasing. There, there was a whole bunch of misunderstandings around that. But unfortunately, when you start correcting journalists, which believe me, is not an easy thing to do, because guess what? They really don't like that very much. When you correct very professionally a journalist based on something that maybe they've misinterpreted and therefore written, they've already moved on to the next story. They don't care frankly they don't care and this this consequence whereby things can actually become particularly where recessions are concerned they can very easily become self-fulfilling prophecies I, i'm not sure the media want to take any responsibility for that even though if you keep talking about house price crashes are inevitable uh, you can't get a mortgage mortgage rates because of something that was said on question time from an unqualified uh, audience member mortgage rate now 10 percent. all of those things become kind of fact it scares the public, scares mm. industry. Stop making decisions based on that rubbish. And then you end up in exactly the situation that you shouldn't have done, but that you do because of what was portrayed as might happen, but as a sensationalist scenario. It, it's, you know, a worry, <laughs> frankly. It's yeah. a worry because people still believe reading the media. And but 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 here's the thing, even though I say it's a worry. We did. So the, my, my PR firm, we did some research just last week where in the middle of the LA around mortgages being unavailable and you know mortgage rates being super high. And there, there was a story from one particular outlet that said, uh, and I think you just alluded to it, that transactions, consumer purchase transactions of, of residential property were starting to fall and fall through, but also collapse. I think it was collapse, wasn't it? That was the word. So we, we did a survey of 20,000 people to find 1,000 people that were in the process of buying or selling a home. And we asked them how many of them had now wavered on their transaction and decided either to cancel it or postpone it. 86% of people had not wavered. Mm. So the vast majority had not pulled out, had not decided not to sell anymore or not to buy anymore, had not got frightened so much that they weren't now going to proceed. So that's, that, to me, that's data. That's a statistical reality based on a large sample of people. But 
the media would much rather say, much rather say, because of, let's say, I don't know, one press release from one resource, whoever it might be, that they've heard that a couple of transactions have fallen through. They'd much rather turn that into reality because it makes for better clicks and better reading. Mm. I think um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you off the back of that was you said you can try and correct a journalist uh, and they don't potentially like that too much. If, mm. if you were writing uh, the headline on mortgage products, what would, what would you say as an example? Well, look, I'd like to think that I'd be writing honest headlines, but I'd be fired probably because mm. a headline that says 1,000 mortgage products have been pulled, but there are still 11,000 available and fixed rate mortgage costs have increased because of swap rates being repriced. However, they're already on. So those two things that I've just said are true. Mm. So 11,000 products have been pulled. So they're for only about eight or 9%. And the, the rates that we saw uh, a few days ago were hiked because of that repricing. And as I say, HSBC, for instance, have just reduced literally in the last two or three days, their fixed rates. But if I wrote that as a headline, I'm not sure it would be scary enough or bold enough or intriguing enough for people to click on it. I mean, it, it might be somewhat reassuring, I suppose. So, but but mainly, you know, to say 45% of mortgages have been pulled uh, and as a consequence, first-time buyers are pulling out their transactions at a great, the greatest rate since 2009. And house prices, and these are the words that have been used recently, house prices are inevitably going to crash. Sam, there is no inevitability about that. These mm. experts said exactly the same thing at the beginning of Brexit, so when Brexit as a vote was announced, then when Brexit was enacted, then when there was going to be a no-deal Brexit, then when, when COVID hit. You know, I, I've said to various people over the last few weeks, you know, you... you you experts, but you do and gloom experts, particularly negative ones. You, you, you're literally part of this broken clock syndrome, which is every now and again in life and in history, you will be right. But mm -hmm. the fact that you keep saying it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. Right? So they, they can bang this negativity drum all they like because let's be honest, sometimes it suits a political purpose, right? So you have websites like housepricecrash.com. Well, by the very nature of their name, it's in their interest to talk down the market. Um, you know, there, there are various people, I think, that are still rattled because they were on the Remain side of Brexit, for instance, and they don't like the fact that the Brexit is won. There are those that don't believe that Liz Truss should get a chance as new prime minister because she was only elected by 80,000 people, not the whole nation. So I think there are a whole bunch of circumstances behind this narrative that is generally quite negative and therefore by the very nature of that damaging i think in terms of what you just said there at the end uh you're exactly right in that if you're reporting on your opinion or you're reporting on one uh situation uh, as a result of an overall circumstance it, it becomes very dangerous the, the easy example of that is <clears throat> so mortgage rates have gone up in australia um quite significantly as well and there was a, a interview on one of our mainstream media news things six o'clock news last week and it was a lady who had had 104 percent mortgage was a single mum and didn't know if she was going to be able to afford to keep her house. And now that is representative of a tiny percentage of people. And unfortunately, she's going to be in a, a pretty tough situation. 
but that's not the story that the news ought to run for the majority of people. That's one story that makes the, the circumstance seem much worse than it is. And actually, if we bring this conversation back to a state agency for a second, one of the, one of the questions I've got for you to sort of close this chat is if there is going to be a continuation of these type of headlines, and I think you and I would agree that there will be um, because everyone is fighting for those clicks, as you say, and chances are uh, the, narrative will get harder before it gets better um but it'll bounce back just as sensationally as it bounces down bounce down as a word what advice would you give to the listeners of this show now in terms of qualifying the news a little bit better for their local market and actually disseminating it into the reality that they can actually share with the buyers sellers landlords and tenants that they're speaking to and then off the back of that how would you advise them to actually make the most of this market as well. Yeah, so I, I wish there was one source of truth. We can <laughs> say, hey, all you've got to do is subscribe to this particular yeah. newswire or this particular Twitter uh, resource. And you know, you can guarantee that what they say is balanced and truthful and reasonable. Uh, that doesn't exist. I mean, I, I tell you what I have to do to try and keep abreast of the balance and the truth and the reality in the news. And again, I don't just mean property, but I mean political. Obviously, I, I do a bit of political uh, political punditry here and there, but talk TV and GB News and so on. It's exactly the same there. I, I have to keep abreast of multiple news sources and you know look out for those that perhaps aren't quite in line with what the sensationalist mainstream media are often saying. So they're you can explore that balance. But I, I go back to the point, I suppose, about data and research and, and whether we like it or not, and, and whether those on the kind of what I would call the wrong side of the argument or not, when you produce actual data and actual statistics, that, that sorry, when you, when, you, when you have actual data and statistics at hand, the, that, they can't be argued with because... Mm when you're saying something is true, you base it on a resource. And if that resource is of good enough standing, so Office of National Statistics or Bank of England or whatever, then then that's the source of truth. But of course, most people that read news that might read, I don't know, an online, uh, you know, like Apple News during the day, or they might sort of jump in and out of Twitter. Most people are not going to go delving into other resources to see if certain things are true. So Mm. I'm not sure there's an easy answer from keeping balance and particularly on social media i think there are people that only follow accounts let's twitter and instagram uh, and linkedin in particular people that only follow people that say things they agree with don't do that right Mm. so i i follow some i think are some really worrying and sort of deeply odd and exaggerated left-wing people on twitter not because i want to listen to what they say because i agree with them but because i'm trying to find i try and keep balanced so i i I think i think that you've just got to make sure that you're keeping your eyes and ears as open as possible to multiple news sources and and certainly you know what they used to say years ago was that you know it's it's not necessarily true just because you read it in the newspaper i think that applies now to everything even more so so i guess my my small bit of advice is don't automatically read a headline and automatically believe that that particular headline, you know, is completely true. 
sometimes you have to dig in and, and kind of apply a bit of context. Um, the second part of the question, which is, you know, what should agents do? I mean, I, I don't think that there's going to be a significant price correction over the next few months. I think we will see growth reduce. So in other words, instead of 1% per month, a tiny amount of growth over the next 12 months. What we will see, though, is volume decrease. So I think mm. a lot of the discretionary sellers that don't need to sell will probably sit the market out for a little while because they'll believe the media that there's going to be a crash. But there are still about six or 700,000 people, sellers, that kind of need to sell, you know, either to get the kids into school or for a job move or because it's a probate or because, you know, for a divorce, whatever the reason might be. So I think there's going to be less stock, even less stock and less ammunition for agents. Um, and actually, it takes us nicely back to the beginning of this conversation, really, which is a good agent will always do OK, even in a bad market. And and, and if you are you know, really trying to find and then qualify and nurture leads, but not with the expect expectation that that lead has to turn into a valuation and a listing next week, then I think as an agent, particularly one that works for themselves, you're going to do okay. Mm. Um, because because most agents, most agencies don't really know how to market. So you, you end up with the thing, I guess, that you could characterize as more than your fair share if you're willing to put the hard yards in when it comes to farming your database, you know, um, and, and that doesn't mean starting now as an agent. So if you're listening to this thinking, oh, right, well, I better start building a database. You already have one. You, you already have contacts on your phone. You already have Twitter followers. You already have Facebook friends. They're the contacts that are free and readily available and if it's not them, they all have friends and relatives that are thinking about buying or selling in particular, that they're the ones to really start kind of subtly working on so that even if the market's smaller, you're still going to have leads and opportunities. I would agree with you uh, implicitly there. Um, it is all about talking to more people, giving them perhaps the context that the media to come back to our original point is not giving them. So one of the conversations I had with somebody yesterday, and I'm just going to find it because I actually thought I wrote it relatively clearly, which is not something I can say all the time. Um, I think that there is a hell of a lot of uh, news about market conditions. Uh, none of that is very local whatsoever. And I think yeah. the really important thing for everybody on, on who's listening to this and agents out there, right, is that the people who are buying, selling and renting you know, or investing in your areas are actually only care about your area. And they're looking to people who can offer them local guidance because they don't know what's happening in Putney from the BBC. They don't know what's happening in Wigan when they're watching the BBC, right? So your job, yeah. as you say, you've got a network of people on Facebook. Well, put something on Facebook that explains the context. You may have read this article about mortgage products going out. What does that genuinely mean? Well, 86% of the people that were currently working with have no change to their circumstances they're getting on with it because that is the reality of what they need to do and, and you talked about there being six or seven hundred thousand people that will need to move in the next 12 months you know the last couple of years have been a blip in terms of more transactions if you look back at 2008 nine so the peak of the sort of gfc where everyone uh was was you know 
pretty miserable, there was still 750,000 transactions. So that's the litmus test. We're not going to get to that level. So I'd, I'd counter your six to 700 and say it's probably going to be close to 800. There's yeah. a market there for a lot of agents. Yeah, but it's exactly. only going to be, as you say, the agents who are talking to people who are moving away from the easy stuff of sending just bulk flyers out there and are actually willing to have those conversations. You know, it's really, for the last two years, I would suggest it's been difficult to be a trusted advisor because the market hasn't demanded it. You know, mm. you've put a property on the market for 400 grand and sold for 450 in three days with 15 offers and you've thought you were really good and you tapped yourself on the back. It's much easier and and I stress much more important to be that trusted advisor and to be seen as that trusted advisor and to offer that as a service. So to be that conduit of information to offer context in, in the market that we're in now. And that will actually help you fly more than anything else. You know, it no, we, we may be think... oversimplifying it, I think, but uh, I think it is a simple process. It's just not that easy. Yeah, and, and maybe what agents should understand as well is that being seen to be a good and valuable agent from the public, not putting pie charts in your window <laughs> and in your leaflets, that you are the local number one. No one gives a toss. No one no one cares. Let's sell and look after you. And, and mainly, trust. So trying to find, trying to procure and increase and demonstrate trust given the value of a property and how long it takes you know we all know that the relationship with the vendor is what six months long at least mm. building trust is not something that you can do quickly so I, I guess i'd say to listeners look if you were if you yourself were putting your house on the market try and remove yourself from the fact that you're an agent yourself would you rather put your property on the market with someone that you've kind of known of a little bit and has sent you some really interesting guidance and context, as you say, and advice and market information for six months? Or would you rather just randomly pick three people from Google that happen to be <laughs> local agents and ask them to come around because they happen to have a brand that was first launched by Edward, somebody rather in 1886, right? That That's, again, back to the beginning of this conversation. That's where we're going to start to see the change. A, mm. because it's a much more human element. We're dealing with an individual now, not a faceless hoarding on a branch office. But also, if you have, whether you particularly ask for it or not, if you have received really interesting information, yet yeah, not gratuitous, hey, I'm a brilliant agent, but yes, this is what the market's doing locally. Uh, and actually, do you know that detached houses are much less affected by the current downturn than flats and semi-detached houses, for instance? Did you know that if you have a house that's within half a mile of a park, it might actually be worth 15% more than one, than one isn't five, uh, you know, half a mile from a park? All of that stuff is gold. Um, mm. And it would gear you to that seller. And when they're ready, again, three months, maybe three years from now, maybe three years from now, they're going to come to you for sure and that's that's the change that i think we're starting to see and and actually look he's i've not been at all controversial sam have i uh, <laughs> unlike, um i think the corporates and the large independents that run as a kind of cookie cutter type organization that don't really understand marketing or they think it's just grabbing a few right move leads every day hoping that the branch manager might actually open most of them which they don't um i think the corporates and the big independents should be very worried indeed about a downturn 
but I don't think a guy or a girl that you know knows the market has been an agent for a while and has visibility and presence in their local vicinity. I don't think they've got anything to worry about at all. Well, I think um, that is not controversial to say the least because it, it's that, that there is simplistic common sense advice. And actually, if you're listening and you're doing that, keep doing it. If you're listening today and you're not doing that, that's what's to start today. There are no tips or tricks. There's no silver bullet. It's just... Where do we start this conversation three years ago? It's it's all about being approachable, accessible, informative, engaging, relevant, uh, maybe not 24-7, but maybe 15-6 or 15-5. Uh, and you're right, you'll have absolutely nothing to worry about. So I think and just, and just quickly, my, my 14 deals I did last year, uh, my marketing spend to attract those 14 sellers was zero. Hmm. Not everybody's Russell Quirk, though. We we don't all have left wing mates on Twitter. So I think for some people that there will be there will be uh, a an investment rather than a cost associated with growing a business, particularly if you're starting out uh, within this market as well. But if you've been around for twenty years, there's still an investment that you make every time to make sure that people are still coming to you as well. So um, knowing your numbers is is probably a really important part, but knowing your relationships and knowing your marketplace and what's important for them, I would suggest is equally as important as well. So it's been a fascinating conversation. I think uh, we've made some sense of the media, but we've got to a point where we realize that you've got to look a bit deeper to those headlines and you've got to rewrite them for your local market so that people understand what it actually means for them and the reality of what it actually means for them. So I really appreciate you giving me your time at five o'clock in the afternoon while you're in Vegas. I'm sure there's much more exciting things happening outside your hotel window. Um, and ho I'm hopefully everyone listening's got some value. I'm off out, I'm off out right now, funny enough. So um, <laughs> I think it'll be my fifth late night on the trot. But um, well, I'll say to well, you what I say to my wife when she goes out, Russell, don't do anything that I wouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, this is Vegas, so I can't guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. All right, many thanks, Sam.